everyone, this is Jonathan Capehart. This week, my guest is Darren Walker. Now, as the president of the Ford Foundation, which has a $12 billion endowment and global reach, he's the most powerful non-politico ever to appear on Cape Up. Okay, I know, this is only the third episode. Listen, we talk about how his being African-American, openly gay, and raised poor inform his work in the rarefied air of philanthropy. I didn't have to study the context of a low-income rural community to know about poverty. Mm -hmm. I lived that experience. And that got us into inequality, privilege, Black Lives Matter, and dancing. Here for yourself right now. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to Cape Up. So, you know, you say the name Darren Walker anywhere in New York City or in the world of philanthropy, and you're guaranteed to get one of two reactions, big smiles or expressions of awe, if not both. Darren's reputation for hard work, bridge building, and empathy are among the many reasons his elevation three years ago to president of the Ford Foundation was greeted with universal applause. This year, Time Magazine named him one of its 100 most influential people in the world. But for nearly 20 years, Darren has been one of the most influential people in my world. And I'm so proud of this man. I can't stand it. Thanks for coming in. Thank you, Jonathan. I'm so happy to be here. The inaugural season of Cape Up. I wow. <laughs> Can you stand it? I can't stand it. I'm so proud of you. So one of the things I've long admired about you is that you are unapologetically you. You're black and openly gay in a world where both are rare. And? <laughs> Play off that. Well, I would, I would only say that I've always been black and openly gay. So it's not a new experience for me. It may be a new experience for people to engage with people like me, but it's the only way I know how to be. It is who I am. It is my identity. It is my humanity. And I believe that each of us needs to bring all of our humanity to the table. And for me, I couldn't I could not be that. So I guess I don't know if I'm successful or not. But what I do know is that what you see is what you get, that I believe we have to be authentic to who we are, and we have to be comfortable putting forward all of who we are. And all of who I am is black, gay, from the American South, single mom, all of the things that make me who I am. You know, I was going to get into all of who you are in the terrific New Yorker profile. You do not run away from from your past. No, I mean, that past has informed and shaped me today. So I embrace my past. I think what may make me different than some in philanthropy is that I've actually lived the experience of being poor. I didn't have to study the context of a low-income rural community to know about poverty. Mm-hmm. I lived that experience. And so for me, that lived experience, I think, has helped to inform and shape and hopefully make my own leadership more authentic, more uh, more engaging, and hopefully uh, less remote. The reason it was important that the New Yorker story not be about me only is because it's the Ford Foundation 
that is doing great work with our grantee partners. I am a servant leader. I am in this role to do the best I can to serve the mission of the Ford Foundation and to honor the legacy of all of the people whose shoulders I stand on. So this really can't be about me. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, you are, if you go to the Ford Foundation website and you go to the About Us and you scroll down, there's a rather um, sort of startling, in a good way, couple pictures. On the left side, you will see Edsel Ford, who is the person who established the foundation, is it 80 years ago, this here, on the left. And on the right is you. You could not picture two completely different people um, who have this shared history. What do you think Mr. Ford would think if he knew today that his foundation is being run by an openly gay African-American man? Well, Edsel Ford was Henry Ford's son. And Edsel Ford was, in fact, a very forward-looking, forward-thinking Uh, modernist. He loved modern art. This is a man who brought Diego Rivera, a known communist, to Detroit to commission him to paint those remarkable Detroit industry murals in the Detroit Institute of the Arts. And he read all of the great uh, philosophers. And so he was in many ways ahead of his time. His father, Henry Ford, the founder of Ford Motor Company was certainly a more conservative man. And I think uh, it is regrettable that he spent uh, a number of years uh, engaging in what was clearly anti-Semitic and racist activity. Uh, And I think if we were to look into the bowels of the archives of the names of Rockefeller and Roosevelt and Carnegie, we'd also probably see things that are regrettable, like their support of the eugenics movement. Mm-hmm. Um, there were lots of things that that happened a uh, hundred years ago that in the uh, in the uh, microscope of uh, 2016 um, look pretty reprehensible. Mm-hmm. But I'm actually quite proud of uh, our association with the Ford name, the Ford family. Um, it's made it possible for. Uh, remarkable transformations to happen all over the world. And it is traced right back to that uh, little Rouge River uh, plant in, in Detroit, Michigan. You've written two op-eds for, the, for the, the New York Times that I think sort of took the philanthropic world by the lapels and shook it. Um, the first one was from December when it was entitled, Why Giving Back Isn't Enough, in which you threw down a challenge to the world of philanthropy. And among the things you wrote, I believe the purpose of our philanthropy must not only be generosity, but justice. Philanthropy can no longer grapple simply with what is happening in the world, but also with how and why. We will ask questions like, are we hearing and heeding those who understand the problems best? What can we do to leverage our privilege to disrupt the drivers of inequality? That word, privilege, I've seen you talk about it in, in many, other, many other speeches. Um, you've written about it. You believe that people should use their privilege to break up privilege. Well, I think we all have privilege. 
regardless of our status economically or racially or gender-wise. So we certainly see playing out the privilege of, of whiteness in a, in a hierarchical culture where whiteness has been placed at the top of the pyramid mm-hmm. and that uh, opportunity has often been defined through that lens of, of hierarchy, going back to our earliest days and the codification, in fact, of African-Americans being at the bottom of that pyramid. So I think privilege is something that that has accreted uh, in this country and in our culture in ways that produce really bad outcomes, uh, that produces more inequality and more exclusion. And what I believe is that if we are to truly address the social challenges of our times, we, we who are privileged, and that certainly includes you and me, Jonathan, we have to ask, what are we doing with our privilege? Are we using our privilege to compound our privilege? Or are we using our privilege to call out the things that are wrong and unfair and unjust in our society? And so I believe that... I have an obligation, a personal obligation, having lived part of my life with very little privilege and living my life today with enormous privilege in ways that I could never have imagined. So I think I should use my privilege to call out things that are wrong and to, in context with other privileged people, to engage in conversations about what we believe is right or wrong in society and to interrogate our own values. For example, the idea of opportunity is a really shared value that I find among many privileged people resonates. But when we start to talk about the structures and systems that produce or inhibit opportunity, people get a little uncomfortable. I was at a an event recently and a woman who who's a legacy of a, a, an Ivy League school and I were talking and I said to her, she said, oh, I, I think it's so important that we increase the number of diverse students and students from low-income backgrounds. And I said, well, one way we could help do that is by doing away with legacy programs at, at universities. And she said, well, I wouldn't want to do that. And I said, well, in some ways... Legacy programs are a, a formalization of privilege. You are privileging a population of people who are probably already privileged, and you're compounding that privilege by giving them a preference to opportunity. And so why would we want to encourage affirmatively that kind of privilege that is actually harmful in many ways, I believe, to our, our democracy, our values, and in fact, ultimately, ultimately to our politics. Mm-hmm. What was her reaction to that? It wasn't favorable. <laughs> I bet not. You know, one of the other um, things that compound privilege are internships, and that's the second 
um, uh, op-ed that you wrote for the New York Times. And you wrote, uh, I sometimes get calls and emails from friends seeking help in landing internships for their children. I understand what they're doing. This is part of being a parent. Still, it's a reminder that America's current internship system, in which contacts and money matter more than talent, contributes to an economy in which access and opportunity go to the people who already have the most of both. Indeed. And, and I was compelled to write that because spring after spring, I am visited uh, with emails and phone calls from friends who are looking for unpaid opportunities for their children. These people are primarily well-off people, um, and, and they are being good parents. They're doing what they're supposed to do, but they are, they are engaging from such a position of privilege and access that in the aggregate, what it does is it creates this reinforcing mechanism that works for certain people with access and privilege and disadvantages others. And, and so that's just one example of, of many kinds of examples in, uh, in ways in which in our, our society privilege uh, just reifies. And, you know, I think about David Bowie because David Bowie used his privilege in the early 80s when he went on MTV before MTV had black entertainment on it. The second question he said, uh, well, while I'm here, let me ask you, why does MTV not show any black artists? And the person interviewing him was really taken aback. Well, Bowie was using his privilege. Mm-hmm. It was a great example of a white man in entertainment recognizing that he could he could basically say what he wanted, that he kind of owned that space. And what are they going to do? Not invite Bowie back? <laughs> so, and it was a transformational moment for MTV because they got so much criticism um, for not having and it and it not having African American artists and it raised uh, the issue to a point where they had to address it and it really changed MTV and their ability to show diversity mm-hmm. and I just think that that's the kind of thing that we all should be doing. You know, I, I, listening to you talk, I keep my mind keeps going for some reason keeps going to the Black Lives Matter movement and wondering, have you had any contact with them? Uh, with anyone within the movement, and what is their reaction to you? Because as you talk about privilege, and as the president of the Ford Foundation, you are sitting on the head of a on the head of a pin in terms of what you're able to do, the access that you have, the power that you have, the privilege that you have, and do the people who are involved in the Black Lives Matter movement hear hear what you're saying and view you as an ally, or do they see you as someone who? is so privileged that you couldn't possibly, even with your own personal history and as public as you are about it, that you couldn't possibly understand where they're coming from. Well, I think the Movement for Black Lives has done some remarkable work in demanding that we hold the mirror up to America. And it's regrettable that some have said that by asserting that Black Lives Matter, that we are saying that all lives don't matter mm-hmm. or that certain people uh, have a preference. I mean, it is simply a recognition of the historic fact that black lives have mattered less. Mm-hmm. That's incontrovertible. It was codified in our Constitution. It took an amendment to change that law 
And then we still had 100 years of practice and of cultural norms that made it very clear that black lives mattered less. And in some ways, the movement today is simply asking the question, will this change? Can we live in a society where black lives matter as much as other lives? That's really the question. And in the context of the racial justice challenges that we see, and certainly in the context of some of the challenges with law enforcement and the relations between communities of color and law enforcement, we've got work to do. But that doesn't mean that we should get caught in a the binary that mm-hmm. so many today see things in. So you're either for Black Lives Matter and you're against the police, or you're for the police and against Black Lives Matter. And so we get into these these false dichotomies that are a huge disservice to the kind of bridging that we need today. And so, you know, my question is, where are the bridgers? Who are the people who understand that we must have respect for and support strong, capable, uh, and well-resourced and culturally competent law enforcement. And we also have to recognize that we have a history of racism in our justice system. We must remember that the war on drugs was propagated by Richard Nixon as a racial intervention. Don Ehrlichman explained this quite explicitly after he was released from prison in the 1980s in a, in a remarkable interview in which he said that the war on drugs was created as a response to delegitimize the two communities who Richard Nixon hated, hippies and African-Americans. Mm-hmm. These were the two communities that caused him the most trouble. And so this effort, the war on drugs, was created It was a racial response. And each administration from Nixon, after Nixon, Ford, Reagan, Clinton, they all passed even more draconian laws on top of the previous laws Mm -hmm. that, that have brought us to this point where it is so clear that the war on drugs has not succeeded What it has succeeded in doing is marginalizing and completely incapacitating thousands of Americans, particularly men of color in this country, has moved them so far outside of the mainstream that it's hard to imagine how they can be productive citizens without deep and entrenched and sustained intervention. Bring you back to something you said, um, and that was, you know, where are the bridgers? And it's interesting you use that word because bridges um, are things you talk about also uh, a lot. Are there enough bridge builders in, specifically in in our country, to get us through this difficult period that we're going through now? Absolutely, Jonathan. I am so hopeful about America's future because there are so many bridge builders. And so when I look at the Ford Foundation, the organizations we support, 
working on the ground around the world, they are building those bridges. When I think about organizations working on labor policy, for example, the plight of low-wage workers in America, people like Ajin Poo and the National Domestic Workers Council, and and the Restaurant Opportunities Center, Saru, Diaram, these women are working to build bridges to the next generation of workers and to create the kinds of policies that make it possible for them to live with dignity and be paid a fair wage. Or Cheryl and Eiffel, working at the Legal Defense Fund, who has been litigating, along with others, in southern states where clearly efforts have been made to, to discriminate, to ensure that some Americans aren't able to vote as conveniently as they might have in the past. These people are building bridges, building bridges to each other and to our future. And so I'm actually very, very optimistic about America's future because the bridge builders are everywhere. We just need to hear them. Their voices aren't necessarily as loud and shrill, and therefore they may not appeal as much to the media. But they are doing the hard work day in and day out to keep America great, to keep America forward-looking, to help America live up to its ideals. I mean, if these bridge builders are allowed to do their work, America will be America. America won't be America if we listen to the voices of the extremes and the shrill and the uninformed we won't be able to be the country we can be. I can't let you go without asking about, so just Google Darren Walker Ballet Hispanico and the video will pop up. That video, which features you giving the, the standard, I'm so sorry I couldn't be there, thank you so much for the honor, but then you dance. And it w- it was spread around like wildfire. There's a, you know, a mixture of, awe and incredulity. Like, what, what's he doing? But it's like, oh my God, how amazing is this? Were you surprised by the reaction to basically just you being you? I was absolutely surprised because to my mind, there was nothing unusual about it. I was asked to, to do a video and which on the face of it sounded dreadful. I mean, they <laughs> wanted me to thank everyone and do what these kinds of corporate videos do. You know, the lights go down in the ballroom of the hotel and you have to sit there in the middle of eating your rubber chicken dinner and listen to some person like read a script. How dreadful. I mean, how how many thousands of times have we done that? I know. You're sitting there like, oh, dear God, no. And and the lights go down and, and you just, you know, just the inside, your insides just melt because you're just... So I didn't want that to be the experience of the audience. And I felt I needed to, to, uh, to express gratitude because it's what I felt, mm-hmm. deep gratitude to Ballet Hispanico because it's an amazing organization and the Ford Foundation has a proud history of supporting them for three decades. But I had to authentically represent that and it was the only way I knew how. And I, I think it did signal that 
it was a new day at the Ford Foundation and that there was a new president. And I hope it signaled that I am accessible, that I don't take myself too seriously, that I am vulnerable and that I'm slightly goofy and a little queer and (laughs) definitely uh, out there in some ways. And that I'm really comfortable with that because that's who I am. And and so I think it just caught on caught on because people appreciated Mm -hmm. that it was an authentic representation of a leader of a foundation. Darren Walker, president of the Ford Foundation. Thank you so, so much for coming in. Thank you, Jonathan. I'm so proud of you and so delighted to be here today. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. You know what? Do me a favor. Subscribe and then rate and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. 